1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Terrorism is a cancer, an infection, an epidemic, a plague. For more than a century, this metaphor has figured insurgent violence as contagion in order to contain its political energies. In Epidemic Empire: Colonialism, Contagion, and Terror, 1817 to 2020, published by University of Chicago Press in 2021, Anjali Fatima Raza Kolb shows that this trope began in response to the Indian mutiny of 1857 and tracks its tenacious hold through 9 11 and beyond. Raza Kolb assembles a diverse archive from colonial India, imperial Britain, French, and independent Algeria, the post colonial Islamic diaspora, and the neo imperial United States. Across literary, administrative, medical, and the non-literary sources, she reveals the tendency to imagine anti-colonial rebellion and Muslim insurgency specifically as a virulent form of social contagion. In our conversation, we discuss an imperial disease poetics, British colonialism in South Asia, the 1857 rebellion, global cholera outbreaks, the Hajj pilgrimage, Bram Stoker's Dracula, struggle for Algerian independence, Albert Camus' The Plague, the 1966 film The Battle of Algiers, Frantz Fanon, Jamila Boupacha, Salman Rushdie's representation of radical Islamism, the 9-11 Commission Report, the Senate Intelligence Committee Report on Torture, and the Osama Bin Laden Mission. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Anjuli Kolb on Epidemic Empire, Colonialism, Contagion, and Terror, 1817-2020. to Welcome, Anjuli. How, how are you? Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies.
2: I'm good, Christian. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you.
3: Yeah, this, this book is really, uh, uh, it's a fascinating book. Um, you kind of uh, move back and forth between time and space in, in very uh, adept ways. And uh, it's it's an exciting read and, and certainly one that is uh, worthy for, for our present moment. So I'm excited to, to talk to you. Uh, we always start uh, our conversations a little bit about the authors, though. So before we hop into the book, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, your background in terms of uh, training, or m- moments, or influences, advisors, things that kind of shaped um, your scholarly trajectory, and what what brought you to this intersection of uh, of Muslim subjects, um, and then this idea of uh, the epidemic imaginary.
2: Thank you so much for asking this question. Not everyone does, and I um, I'll start by saying that I have recently was lucky to read a the kind of take or reflection by a reviewer um, who noticed that the book, in spite of being heavily footnoted and and, you know, historically researched, is what he called radically a memoir. And that was really interesting to me because I first of all, I think that too often in scholarship we isolate lived experience from the kind of purported objectivity of scholarship. And this book is so profoundly influenced by my own formation as a person, as well as as a thinker. And those two things are not so separate. So a kind of connect the dots, brief autobiography. Um, I am the child of doctors. Um, On my mother's side, my mom is from Pakistan. She was born there after her parents moved during partition. So her older... Siblings were born in India, and then um, she and her older sister and younger brother were the three that were born in Pakistan. Um, and, you know, four of them are, are medical doctors, and their spouses are medical doctors as well. And some of this came from a really challenging experience that my grandparents had as um, educated British Muslim subjects in India who lost family members. I mean, Huge numbers is an exaggeration, but lost a number of family members, multiple siblings, multiple children to infectious disease. And neither of my grandparents was trained in medicine, but they were very interested in making sure that their children, including the girls, had an opportunity to contribute to the well being of the community. And so medicine has been described to me as a, a social good. As a as a kind of duty and obligation, a form of ministry, um, since I was very little and my parents were young when I was born, so they were in school, which meant that you know there wasn't a whole lot of fancy childcare, um, and there was a lot of studying. So my environment as a kid was really surrounded by by medical knowledge and, and medical learning, and then the way that my parents kind of understood their own careers. My mother's a radiologist who who specializes in a kind of feminist medicine practice, um, mostly breast imaging and uh, and reading films. Um, and I use that word very specifically. I'll, I'll come back to it in a moment. And then my dad, who's a primary care physician and had actually been, he is um, a German-American from Buffalo and had actually gone to seminary for a year when he was a teenager. So there's this kind of like mix of... Um, Teaching and medicine and spiritual care—that was kind of like always around. Um, but both of them were very serious about the idea that we now call narrative medicine, um, namely that there's a real strong practice of reading in medical diagnosis, and there's also um, processes of diagnosis and interpretation in literary reading. So these these mixes were there um, from the start, and then. My decisions were, as many people's decisions are, as I went through my education, I thought I would be a pre and then I wasn't, and then I encountered some teachers at Columbia where I did my undergraduate work that exposed me to post-colonial theory in a more serious way. Kind of been interested in high school. I started reading Orientalism as a, as a teenager in high school, which... Um, a little bit of a weird thing to do but uh, you know I had some teachers who were doing great work teaching us about the industrial Revolution and I was like well what about Empire like I know something about this and so that project basically burgeoned um, through my time in college until 9/11 and I write about this in the book a bit so I won't I won't bore you with the details again but I was a junior in college in New York when the towers came down and it was immediately apparent to me that the language that was kind of dispersed of Islamism, radical Islamism, fanatical Islam, these, these terms that are used like almost interchangeably, um, even though they don't have the same definitions, were so strongly and so regularly associated with a contagious phenomenon or an epidemic. So like by the time I got out of the building where I was having class, when the second tower came down, I was like, Oh my God, well, you know, all our cell phones were down, but the news was on in the student center and it was just, it was an epidemic of terror. That's what the Western media was calling it. And in the months afterwards, um, I just was struck by how frequently these kind of medical and epidemic figures were invoked. And so you know, I like left for a little while. I went and worked in publishing for a couple of years, and then, in a way, I would say like neither was my life or career trajectory getting better, nor was the war on terror getting better. And so, I kind of found myself back in graduate school, um, reading for a PhD, almost not intending to finish. I was just like, I just want some more school, and if I can get it funded, that's awesome. And I went back to Columbia to do my PhD and um, and this project is what came out of that. So a kind of um, set of obsessions that stretches back to childhood uh, and then really came together in, in various versions of this project, but, you know, many of which were about like my life as an American Muslim.
3: Yeah. It's really fascinating. To, uh, after now reading the book and then hearing this history, it, it totally makes sense how these things intersect in, in your mind and in your life. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, you know one of the one of the things I really like about this project is it it does tie all these these threads that for some outsiders seem perhaps very different, um, but it ties them together so clearly. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the process of how this started to emerge the, these these various threads? Um, and then how you kind of uh, took this through into into working it into a, a book project?
2: I feel like I have such a clearer sense of this now than I did, of course, when it was happening. <laughs> right. But sure. um, it, so, first of all, it didn't seem possible to me in my training, my, like the classes that I took specifically with the kind of leaders in postcolonial theory on the on the East Coast. I mean, there was a whole other really interesting branch on the West Coast that was more founded in in kind of um, race and ethnic studies programs. But the way that it came to me through Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and Gauri Vishwanathan, who was the director of my dissertation, and then um, the junior people who were coming up in the department in these areas, Joey Slaughter, Jennifer Wenzel, and Brent Edwards, um, there was... There wasn't a clear path to science. And so there were a couple of people in the department who were doing and like, you know, around New York City who were doing so at CUNY, um, at NYU, where I took some classes and studied with some people, there weren't a lot of intersections between um, race studies and History of science, and it's still the case that you know history of science spaces, both for historians and for um, cultural critics and literary scholars, are, are kind of siloed um, from from race and ethnic studies or postcolonial studies. So that didn't even seem like a possibility to bridge for the first couple of years, and. Um, I was also being pushed by the market in certain kinds of ways to like write about big canonical literary works because how else could I prove that I was a literature scholar? How else could I go on the job market? Um, And I think the key for me was in recognizing something that's pretty, I think, or at least it was at the time, kind of underappreciated about Foucault and Foucault's role in American kind of left critique. And that is that he started as a historian of science um, and that his teachers were historians of not just disease, but imperial disease specifically. Now, when I say that now, it should probably click into focus immediately for listeners who are familiar with the history of sexuality, who are are familiar with the birth of the clinic. But that's kind of not the Foucault that I received. The Foucault that I was taught was was Death of the Author Foucault and um, Panopticon Foucault. And so realizing that there was this, Incredibly important thread of of theory, which I should say was also even at Columbia, kind of siloed from post-colonial concerns or the concerns of third world literature, um, was crucial because it meant that what it meant that I could see that studies of power could be connected to studies of discipline. And once I realized that, I looked back at my own bookshelf and I was like, "Oh, of course! Like Said's Orientalism is such a Foucauldian project. It's about this." area of knowledge and what that area of knowledge that seems to be politically neutral consolidated about a certain kind of um, Western politics. So too with my own dissertation director, Gauri Vishwanathan, who wrote this beautiful book called Masks of Conquest that argues extremely convincingly, I mean, argues is even a weak word for it. It uncovers and, and straight up proves that English, the study of English literature was invented in India and it was actually exported from India back to Britain. And this was life-changing for me. I mean, realizing that you could study a form of knowledge that's installed in the university as if it were neutral, objective. Um, the floodgates just opened. And then I started reading all these histories of the disciplines. So Bernard Cohn's colonialism and its form, forms of knowledge, Partha the Mithra's much maligned monsters. I was like, oh my God, it's in art history. Oh my God, it's in anthropology. Oh my God, it's in <laughs> medical history. And then I was like, I too can do this. And, um, And, and then the historical pieces began to fall together. Um, so it wasn't clear to me what the project would be. It was like, I have this figure that I'm obsessed with and that's why do people say epidemic of terrorism? And now I understand that there's a way of approaching something like this, a poetic figure through the disciplines and the history of the disciplines. Now, how do I start to put those things together? And I had no training in reading medical history. Um, I had very little concept of how I would begin to do this. Um, And then I started finding the text that became my guide. So, you know, Susan Sontag illness as metaphor and the brilliant and completely field changing book by Priscilla Wald called Contagious, which is a kind of history not too dissimilar from the one that I'm telling, but in an American literary context. Um, And. Those, Yeah, that was kind of the groundwork that I I would say that that's my like top 10 syllabus of things that helped me understand what kind of shape of a project I wanted to do. I also insisted all the way through on being a comparatist, which was like torture for my advisors. (laughs) Um, But I was a a complete undergrad because English at my college was like Dickens and Shakespeare and Spencer. And as much as I love those writers, it did not seem complete to me. And it didn't seem... I mean, it just wasn't what I wanted to do with my time. So I was taking all these courses on like Middle Eastern film and theater and um, art like uh, temple art in South Asia and, you know, studio photography in Afghanistan. So um, I kind of really tried to carry that complete training um, from my undergraduate years into my, into my graduate study and insisted on having as, as you will have noticed from looking at the book, also like a whole section on French Algeria. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think. I think that's pro- like a good place to start, at least for saying, how did I figure out how to do what I wanted to do?
3: Yeah, I love this, this backstory, so to speak. Uh, it, it's really cool to kind of hear how this, this um, kind of was cobbled together piece by piece, uh, <laughs> despite some of these challenges, it sounds like we're, we're you're facing. So, um, so you've you kind of been pointing at kind of what, what the stakes of the book are, and um, and you, you, I mean, really uh, you offer this kind of genealogy of the, the terror epidemic. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of, uh, lay out what the, these key threads of this, um, I believe you call it an imperial disease poetics, um, and then, uh, set us up for, uh, the, the argument that you're making about how, uh, insurgent violence and especially in its uh, Islamist terroristic form, um, is rendered as an epidemic? What, what are the kind of, uh, core aspects we need to, to keep in mind here?
2: If it sounds good to you, I might start from the end and work backwards. There's a, there's a moment in the nine 11 commission report, which is one of the texts that I read, um, and I'll just confess, like I read it as a literary critic, um, because that book was nominated for a National Book Award. John Updike called it the best um, group written text since the King James Bible. Like it was sold at ten dollars a copy um, by uh, by Norton. So it was like that book came out, and people were reading it on the beach, like straight up buying it at airports and like taking it. I mean, I it's it's actually mind blowing to me having spent so much time in that book that anyone made their way through it. It might be one of those books that everybody says they read, but Nobody really did read. Um, so So long story short, that book is fascinating in a million ways. Um, but it also has this great moment near the end, where it's kind of looking back and retrospectively, the commissioners are saying, you know, the, the whole intelligence operation leading up to 9/11 was like a dysfunctional hospital. There were specialists everywhere, the FBI, the CIA, um, urban police forces. They had they had people on the ground. I'm not de- I'm not defending this um, these uh, areas of of militarization, but this is what the 9/11 Commission report says. It says there were all these specialists on the ground. Um, so they don't elaborate this, but we can imagine like there was a dermatologist and there was an ophthalmologist. <laughs> um, but the 9/11 Commission report says there was no attending. There was no attending physician. So it's as if the very core thing that was wrong, the very core disease had not and could not be diagnosed by all of these specialists whose knowledge was not coordinated. And I was like, damn, this isn't just George Bush on TV in an interview. This is state-sponsored history. And that's what one of the um, key writers of the commission, Ernest May, who was a historian of American imperialism and was um, really kind of the shaper of this document. Um, He was the writer. I mean, there were other people contributing to the knowledge and the paragraphs and whatever, but he really shaped the kind of rhetoric of the 9-11 commission report. And I believe him to have been kind of the driver behind its metaphorical through lines. But it wasn't it wasn't just casual. You know, it wasn't just Rumsfeld um, in, a, in a moment of peak or trying to figure out how to analogize one confusing thing to another confusing thing. It was like installed in the document that was going to tell future generations what happened on 9/11. Um, and so that became for me, like a goalpost. And I was like, okay, how do I get to an understanding of where historically that came from? So to walk you through very quickly, the kind of arc of the argument, I, I start there and I think, okay, what do I want to call this? What do I want to call this really persistent metaphor that stretches across two hundred years? I think it's I think it's a system of of metaphors that controls empire through the figure of disease. So the disease poetics of Empire is really the kind of uniting principle of the whole book. And on the one hand, it means this system of metaphors and and how it proliferates throughout the the imperial space. But on the other hand, it also takes really seriously what the word poesis means. And that word, which gives us poetics and gives us poetry, also means a making, it means creation. So an act of poesis is bringing something out of nothing. Um, speech act theory is really important here in the way that I've been thinking about imperial disease poetics um, or the poesis of uh, diseased empire. But the argument that I wanna make Alongside the fact that we have this huge rhetorical system that uses this this metaphor over and over again, is also that that the metaphor creates empire, and this is sort of counterintuitive. Like it's hard to see how the metaphor works in reverse, how it hardens and becomes material. But that's what I'm after in the book: is how, in moments of um, Challenges to imperial state form. So, 9 so 11 being one example of non state sponsored insurgency against US empire. Um, and I'll give you a couple of other examples in a moment. How does the um, that metaphorical kind of landscape not just reflect something about, as literary critics, we call this like symptomatic reading? Like, it's not just a symptom in my mind, it's actually an act of creation. So, Imagining and projecting and reinforcing and continuing to, um, let me just say like market an idea of disease, uh, becomes a really important way that empire consolidates itself. Um, and it does that by insisting that, that, that imperial science is the only way forward. It's the only, um, means by which, by which people in colonized space or third world space can be cared for. Um, and, and, and in a much more kind of philosophical and conceptual register, the edges of a healthy body politic become the defining principle of the unhealthy outside the body politic. So to be included in empire is to be part of the, um, functioning, global health body and to be against empire is to be ejected from that functioning global health body and to be understood as constitutively non-human, constitutively sick, constitutively disabled. Um, and these ideas go all the way back to to Hobbes, right? Um, how we think about the state uh, functioning as, as coordinated body parts. So to explain how this came to pass, I go back to uh, early 19th century British history in India And I look at the intersections of actual epidemics. So in the 19th century, cholera is the big one in British India. Um, And then how those uh, cross over and let me say, like cross-fertilize languages with anti-colonial insurgency. So the one that's probably the most familiar to the listeners of this podcast is the 1857 mutiny, um, which I still use the word mutiny. Sometimes I get... um, I get pushback on this. Uh, I can say more about why if you're interested. But that mutiny, for example, came in a wave of cholera that decimated British troops. And so the response of the empire was weakened um, from what it might have been. This is something that I observe in a a number of different documents, but especially in in Marx and Engels' reflections on what they call the First Indian War of Independence. And then um, after that 19th century example, um, there is a resurgence of this language where fighting against empire gets talked about as if it were a disease. And that happens, again, really, really strongly in the Algerian independence movement in the 1950s um, and into, into 1962 in Algeria when it's independence. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, how, does, how what is the translation between British imperial language and science and then French imperial language and science, and why do we get it again after 9-11? Um, and, you know, the best theory in a way that I can come up with is that um, each disease outbreak and each insurgency functions almost like an archive of the previous ones. And so you never have a kind of political uprising or an anti-state terror act that doesn't scoop up and call forth all of the ones that came before it. Um, And it's this memory, this kind of process of disease archiving and insurgency archiving that continues to hold these two things. I'm like crossing my fingers. If we were on video, you'd be able to see. I'm like showing the interweaving of these. It just continues to bring this dyad into view, um, especially when Western people decide that they're terrified of Muslims um, and, and that that is not kind of separate from terrors about how Muslims move throughout the world. And I would say also the population, quote unquote, crisis um, of global Islam. Hmm. This is a very long answer, so let me stop there and you can um, tell me if I should dig in further.
3: Yeah, well, you know, being being nerdy and academic, I'm I'm interested in in how you do this, too, not just the the kind of narrative that you're telling, which uh, obviously is, I I think, is very well done. But um, you you just mentioned, right, that these these metaphors become material, um, right? Or the metaphors kind of construct the reality. And I think part of how you uncover this is uh, through this this approach that you call, epi, uh, or I'm going to let you say it. <laughs>
2: Epid- Epidemiological reading. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's the one.
3: And so you, you do this uh, through this kind of alternating sources from uh, literary and then what we might think of as historiographical archives uh administrators uh medical documents all sorts of uh, uh, different things like that um, so this this approach can can you describe why you took this approach um, what it does for you and and perhaps how it intersects with your uh, your your methods and your motives for for doing the project
2: Sure. Um, I love this question because not only is it a fun kind of memory to revisit, but it, I think it's also useful for the, for those who might be venturing out a little bit far from their disciplines in terms of creating a project that they feel is really going to sustain their interest for a long period of time and you mentioned earlier that there are listeners who, you know, are writers and and, and historians and trying to put together their own really Important work, and to those people, I would say, like I have been such a vagrant reader um, for such a very long time. And this is this is a phrase that I borrow from my teacher, Elaine Friedgood, who wrote a book called *The Ideas and Things*. She's written a number of books that I really love, but this one is very important to me because she does a kind of material history of objects like mahogany and tracks them through both literary texts, but also through trade networks. And once you finish a project like this, or if you've read enough um, scholarship that kind of moves between what you described as historiographical texts um, and not, I I would just say like more broadly, like non-literary archives and literature, it starts to seem so inevitable. Like how could we isolate literature from all other kinds of writing? I mean, every writer is reading the news. Every writer is, you know, reading other texts. Um, We're reading all kinds of things from subway ads to pamphlets at the doctor's office. Um, And to be capacious and wild about what counts, I think is to start to see really important and complex relationships between what I would call like discursive units or habits. So you can't really understand why something keeps happening in novels and poems, unless you think seriously about what's happening in parliament and in the news and in popular songs. And that's not to say that literature is just some kind of, um, secondary reflection of culture or that literature, you know, is a sort of snapshot of some bigger history. I think that history is text. Um, and I use text, again, capaciously, so not just written text, but but oral text and all kinds of records. And that, that just led me to a million different places. And it led me to see things like, um, I write about this in chapter two, if anybody's interested in looking at it, but I must have gone through something like 8,000 pages of colonial medical documents from just like 1817 to 1823. And in in so many of those reports, um, a scientist or a meteorologist would use the phrase tiger infested mangrove swamps to describe the landscape in the Sundarbans in the Delta region, um, south of Calcutta, where cholera was endemic and then exceeded endemicity. And I was like, how is it possible that they're all saying the same thing. Like, it's not just, you know, there are tigers and swamps in each of these texts. Like, they use the phrase literally tiger infested mangrove swamps. So it's like a meme. And when you start <laughs> to notice literary memes that stretch from medical documents to The Lancet in London to The New York Times in 2017, and I'm not kidding about that, it literally appeared again, in 2017 in a report on cholera um, in the New York Times, then how can you cut some of those out of your analysis? You can't. You have to be like, this language is, it's multidisciplinary. It's emerging the way almost, and and I'm going to start to answer your question about epidemiological reading, but when you read that broadly, you start to see things emerging uh, almost like we see disease crop up. Like, sure, there's probably a patient zero somewhere, or there's probably like an initial instantiation. I think it's like James Kennedy for the tiger infested mangrove swamps. But like, undoubtedly, there was some, you know, auntie who said it to him, right? So he stole it from somebody else. I, you know, I I can't um, track that all the way back to its origin. But what I can say is, you miss a lot if you don't notice how it travels from one place to another. And so... I won't make too much of it, but reading epidemiologically um, is paying attention equally to all of those sites of articulation. The same way that we, when we think about a, a, a contagious disease like COVID-19, you know, we could spend trillions of dollars trying to track exactly the um, pangolin or bat from which the disease, the zoonotic disease jumped the species barrier or we could try to treat people who are sick. And I think of what I was doing in this book, or I thought about it for a long time. And I have to question whether this was, you know, an ethical method at this point. I think it's a different question than it was when I finished the book, but I wanted to see not like, I don't need to make some accusation about like who started this issue. What I want to see is how, how do we then track it across space and time? Um, And I, you know, for me, it was like 200, a 200 year, 220-year history was like just about as much as I could manage across three different literary, dis- like literary subfields. So I was like, okay, that's that's my snapshot for now, and and I'll take it. I think I think that really encompasses the phenomenon, and and I'm eager to hear from others if they don't think it does.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Yeah, no, it, it's. Uh, I mean,
3: it's it's quite an achievement the the book project just to kind of think about how it's constructed and then um, after reading through and seeing how well you've you've uh, connected the dots, um, and I feel like I could nerd out about this kind of background and the the methods you use and all this for, uh, for even longer. But um, I want to get into um, some of the, 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 the text that you're looking at, um, and some of the moments that you're discussing. And so you, you break down the book into these, these three parts, um, which you've, you've kind of plotted for us. The first being, um, kind of, uh, British, British colonial South Asia. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the specifics of how, um, South Asia as a site, the, the 1857 rebellion um, as a moment gets tied to these um, narratives about anti-colonial violence um, in a epidemic uh, kind of rhetoric.
2: This is, I I hope, one of the most useful things I do in the book, um, not just because I think it's instructive, but because I would wish reading all the mutiny novels on no one, not even my worst enemies, they're (laughs) brutal to get through. Um, But the literary world in England was, and and the kind of imperial um, literary machinery in India was completely obsessed with the 1857 rebellion, the same way that after 9-11, you just couldn't escape it. Um, Every single writer in America, at least ask themselves the question, do I need to weigh in on this? And a lot of people who shouldn't have weighed in on it did weigh <laughs> in on it. Um, it was always a, uh, right? And, and I think it'll be even sharper, you know, in 10 years when we when we probably look back and see this pandemic year as a real shift. I I, I think we will. Um, That it was a culture industry, that the 9-11 culture industry, like, tells us, a ton about the big picture, literary markets, filmic markets, TV markets. I mean, think about Homeland, Twenty Four, every Catherine Bigelow movie. All of the terrible. You you have a book coming out on this in I think a couple of months on Muslims on film. Um, it wasn't just an American phenomenon; it was a global phenomenon. And likewise with the post with the post rebellion in nineteen in eighteen fifty seven in India. Um, It just was the subject matter. It was such a crisis for for British um, imperial confidence. And it in fact changed the structure of governance that wasn't in fact a structure of governance before 1857 and then was after 1858 when the Raj was installed. Um, I've talked about this a bunch recently in in other interviews, so I, I won't belabor the point, but that culture industry looked like artworks, like paintings of vulnerable white women being attacked by sepoy rebels, it looked like lithographs made out of those paintings that were distributed for like, I don't like almost like baseball cards. I mean, it's so bizarre to think about. I will, I will like pat us on the back as as a culture in America, we didn't, I don't think make like terrorist baseball cards, um, after 9-11, but you know, one wouldn't be surprised to, to find out that that such a thing existed, um. And it was part of this, like broader effort to both. I, I'm not really a psychoanalytic critic, but I would say to to kind of process and understand what had happened so far away, because most of this cultural production was happening in in the metropole in England, um, but also to to drum it up, right? To 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 kind of dig into manufacturing the crisis. I don't think everybody even knew why, right? I mean, I think there was like like after 9-11, there was a kind of combination of genuine panic and then panic that was part of a propagandistic imperial machinery. Um, so to get to your question, many of those mutiny novels um, featured something that historian Julia Stevens called the Phantom Wahhabi, um, which is a kind of figure that projected foreign Islam. So like not South Asian Islam, but specifically peninsular Islam as a kind of terrible import. Um, And then would feature a character, a Malvi or, you know, some kind of teacher in a madrasa who was stoking the flames of fanaticism. And so fanaticism goes from being a kind of political term to describe anti-imperial insurgency to being a religious identifier and an ethno-religious identifier. Um, so in this period, that figure like begins to crop up and it's copied from one of the mutiny novels to the other and it's kind of expanded from the mutiny novels to the popular press. And in this way, this sort of trickle-up effect almost of you know a few people's imagination, of the role that Muslim pl- Muslims played and Islam played um, in the insurgency became the sort of common sense, um, and the 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 fanaticism. I mean, it's hard to ascribe. I've actually spent so many years trying to figure out what I think about the causality, and it's hard to dis- it's hard to ascribe. It's a bit chicken and egg, but. Um, that fanaticism was very often in these same mutiny novels and the reviews of the mutiny novels and the popular culture that kind of spun out from them very often described as a contagion. So there would be like a, you know, a cloud or a storm or a mist or a miasma of fanaticism that would sweep over a crowd of Muslims. Um, this is like Robert Armitage Sturndale's, the Afghan knife. Um, or there would be a kind of contagion of rebellion among the troops. That's um, Philip Meadows Taylor's Sita. And that language, yeah, just got like laminated. Um, <laughs> the, the figure of disease and, and the kind of fanaticism of Muslims. And there were, you know, there were important roles that that sick people and Hindu people played in the rebellion, but for the British archive of the mutiny, the record of the mutiny, blaming Muslims became the most, sticky. I don't even want to say the most politically effective, because I'm not sure that that really holds throughout the the period that I would say stretches from from 1858 to 1897, at least, maybe even 1902. Um, But it was really sticky. It just worked. I mean, I think there was some mystery about Islam that threatened British sensibility far more than a kind of syncretic Hinduism and ascribing a more orthodox version of Islam to this fanaticism was also handy because the actual practices, as you know, on the ground in South Asia were quite mixed. There were many Muslims who worshipped Hindu deities. There were many Hindus that worshipped Muslim deities. There were many rituals and practices that were shared between the two communities. And so, um, in the grand tradition of kind of myth Western mythmaking about the East, um, Islam was kind of monolithicized and rendered, um, rigid, orthodox, unbending, uh, and contagious.
3: Yeah. Um, there's so much to this book I want to talk about. Um, we're not, we're not going to be able to get it to at all, but, um, one of the things that, um, I, I kind of was drawn to, uh, was in the discussion, you, you, talk about the, the cholera, uh, outbreaks and how, um, uh, the kind of health discourses around these, um, they kind of create, uh, these, these orientalist rhetorics about public health security. Um, and one of the kind of key, um, parts of that was around, um, religious pilgrimages, um, not, not just, um, Muslim, of course, but, um, uh, you do talk about the Hajj. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about, um, how colonial subjects, religious practices came to be understood as um, kind of conduits for disease.
2: I totally can. I did not, I didn't talk about this earlier, but um, David Arnold, who was part of the subaltern studies group as a British historian of disease and empire um, is who taught me this. Hmm. He, he, I mean it's in a way it's funny like so much of what I'm trying to do in the book is just like recover genius insights of others and put them together in a way that helps explain our now um but arnold and john slight who's a historian of british empire b- both both write about the Criminalization of pilgrimage in India. And in the 1830s outbreak, that criminalization was largely linked to Hindu pilgrimage um, via the Kumbh Mela. And I say this all the time, so I, for, so please, like for listeners who have heard me talk about this book in other contexts, forgive me for repeating myself. But the the cholera outbreak um, initially, in 1817, happened because of deforestation in the Sundarbans. So that deforestation was carried out by East India Company troops, and then, and then you know, a century of people being sick from this disease. Um, so by the 1830s, which it, which is also to say, like I, I like to put a fine point on it, like it just was imperial resource resource extraction from the jump um, that made this. Disease kind of go go crazy um, regionally, and in the 1830s outbreak, there was a lot of concern about controlling the movement of Hindu pilgrims because people were going in the Kumbh Mela from all over South Asia, um, and part of part of like Hindu ritual was also to both bathe in and drink water, which was the which was the conduit of cholera infections, and then and then to bring sacred water home, right? So you could you kind of couldn't imagine a worse um, set up for spreading cholera around the subcontinent, but you know, of course, rather than rather than going back to the the origin and saying, well, maybe we shouldn't have like cut down all those trees and like spread cholera out of its endemic region by troop trains and so forth, um, the, the the British government and the Um, sanitary commissioners and the commissioners general and basically all the people who are writing reports, which is like my new demographic, because there's no other way to describe them. (laughs) Like the report makers, these bureaucrats um, were like, Oh no, like we have to stop all these Hindus from going everywhere. It was not as politically expedient. I mean, in, in one way because we weren't at a moment of such widespread rebellion in that moment in Imperial history where it made a whole lot of sense for the empire Slash East India Company to come down really hard on religious practices. And, and the British, you know, unlike the French and Spanish, were not as thoroughgoingly a missionary empire, at least in India. There was some measure, at least at the level of decision making, of respect for some religious freedom. I, I don't think it was kind. I think it was defensive. But in any case, it was the practice not to impinge too much On religious behavior. Later in the century, about 20 years later during the next really big outbreak, um, the kind of accusatory eye shifted toward Muslim pilgrimage. There were a lot of Muslims who were traveling um, to do Hajj in Mecca, and many of them were being um, transported by British basically touring companies. Um, I love this because it's such a great little punctum One of those touring companies was Thomas Cook, who we may remember from traveler's checks. Um, But their journeys across the Middle East and and to the Hejaz became the occasion, according to sanitary commissioners and report writers, for the movement out of India. So like, okay, fine, Hindus are spreading it around India, but then the Muslims are taking it out of India into the Middle East. Now it's crossing the, the... into North Africa, into the Mediterranean, and it's causing all kinds of chaos. I mean, more of us have been thinking about this over the last year, but what we even call an epidemic was really defined in that period by whether it reached Europe or not. And so once it it reached Europe in the 1850s, um, there was a much stronger push to figure out you know, what was going on and how and who was dying and how could we stop it and what does quarantine mean and is it going to derail our trade networks and, you know, are we going to keep boats in the harbor before they land with goods and and so on and so forth. So at the International Sanitary Conference in Constantinople in 1850, um, there was a huge fight basically about whether cholera was contagious. Um, and if it was contagious, whether Muslims performing Hajj had, um, you know, could, could shoulder most of the blame. So this is kind of the preconditions um, that made it possible after the 1857 rebellion to, like, you need to have something in the rhetoric to build on at a moment like 1857. And this was that groundwork. Um, it had been a kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to call it like a, they were trying out theses. They were trying to figure out which one would stick. Like, who can we blame for this? And are people going to believe us? And the one that really stuck was was Muslims
3: um uh, there's a lot more we could talk about in part 1 but um uh, in part 2 you move from from south asia to north africa um and largely revolving around the struggle for algerian independence um and you you do a lot uh between these two chapters um but but i'm wondering maybe if you could just uh begin by why why did you see a clear line from uh 19th century uh, south asia to uh Mid 20th century North Africa. Well, uh, where where did the connection come through? And then, what do you see? Um, h- how do you see this kind of um, disease rhetoric uh, revolving in the the North African case?
2: This is another point where I'll kind of start at the end and then work backwards because, well, I guess <laughs> I guess you're getting a sense of how I how I think and how I work. Um, it really was the 2003 Pentagon screening of the Battle of Algiers that brought me back. Um, to Algeria. So again, if the question or the problem that I was trying to solve in this book is like, how do we get to 2001 terrorism epidemic? Um, looking all around, trying to observe you know, what we were writing about and what we were talking about. And and, and I will say like what texts reemerged as important touchstones. Algeria was huge. So Alistair Horne... Um, another British historian who wrote a beautiful history of the Algerian war called the Savage Wars of Peace um, was reissued. That book was reissued by the New Yorker Review of Books in 2005 or 2006, I believe. Uh, Somewhere in that span of 10 years after 9-11, the Pentagon held a screening of Gio Corvo's film, The Battle of Algiers in 2003 um, with a tagline on their flyer that said how to Win a battle and lose the war of ideas, I think is what they said. And it was explicitly framed as counterinsurgency training for Iraq. So I was like, what, you know, is Algeria the historical precedent that helps us, and by us, I mean you know, whoever is making decisions at the Pentagon understand insurgency, understand Muslim terrorism? And the answer was incredibly clear. It was, yes, Algeria is the 20th century paradigm, even more than the 1857 mutiny. Algeria is what remains in the kind of iconography of decolonization of a Muslim place that is terrifying to the West. And it remains so not just for the expansion of empire but also for anti-imperial groups right so battle of algiers is, is screened by the panthers and in palestine and you know it's it's spread all across the world as a kind of um, important revolutionary reel and at the same time you know kind of what do i want to call these i'm trying to think of a I need an analog for like the people who are writing reports in the 19th century. But this time it's like big name book critics, Um, big name book critics in the (laughs) the NYRB and the LRB were like this year, like they were talking all about Camus' The Plague. And, you know, that's a novel that I had read when I was a teenager. And I have to say, I still don't love it. I barely even like it. I don't think I like it at all. Um, but like, so again, the question was like, why is everybody talking about this stuff? Where is the energy around these famous texts, these famous books, and what is going back to that historical context going to tell me about antecedents for our present? And, um, you know, what I found is that on the side of Camus, the Plague is so incredibly allegorically flexible that it can kind of tell you any story you want it to tell you. And what Camus kept saying after the publication of the novel was that it tells the story of the resistance in France against the Nazis. Um, but at the same time he was writing that novel, he was also writing a ton about the Algerian liberation movement. And so my rereading of that text just goes back and, and starts to figure out, like where do I see intersections between his political writings in which he's sort of like ambivalently supportive of the idea of freedom in, in Algeria, but not of political revolution? And then how do we then attach those writings, um, his journalistic writings, to this huge allegory of disease, which has stood you know, for 80 years almost um, as a kind of paragon of Western philosophical literature? Um, there are tons and tons of details about the Algerian context that um, reactivate the 19th century as well. So I've talked a little bit about how the Algerian context looks forward to the U.S. empire after, after 9-11, but it also looks backward to the, um, the Indian uprising and the Indian uh, independence movement. By explicitly drawing on the memory of cholera, so I said earlier that diseases and insurgencies often function as archives of previous diseases and insurgencies. I mean, one of the first things that we do as people and as critics and as analysts, casual or or you know um, professional, is to say, okay, this thing is like this other thing, right? The insurrection at the Capitol is like a white supremacist up- uprising, or it's um, you know it's some kind of reflection on. 1876 or the Reconstruction Era, Um, but that gesture of analogy in the Algerian context in in the late 1940s and moving into the independence struggle also looked back to the Indian context um, for various reasons. But one of them was the invocation of cholera at the beginning of Camus' novel. So there's a kind of smuggling in of that previous history into the mid-century moment. And I think it's worth noting that that the plague was published. The year that Pakistan and India won their independence. So, the first um, post Haitian uh, anti colonial, successful anti colonial movements had come to fruition in those five years after the Second World War. Um, And it's not, it just can't be far from an interpretation of the plague. And for some reason, it just hasn't come up in the criticism before this. And so, positioning the Algerian context between US neo empire and the kind of dissolution of the British empire just felt to me like an unavoidably intuitive and important link between this kind of Victorian moment and and our moment now.
3: Um, So the other uh, kind of archive of texts that you look at um, in relation to the the second section uh, is thinking about um, kind of uh, a, a lived experience in the Algerian struggle. And you, you talk about kind of the medicalized, Colonial subject through the work of um, Franz Fernand and then Jamila Bupuja. Um I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, what you see as their work revealing um, about the threat of Muslim violence.
0: My God, what doesn't it reveal? <laughs> let me, uh, let me. I mean, this chapter was so difficult to put together. Um, it was really thanks to a teacher of mine, Joey Slaughter, who wrote a book called Human Rights Inc. Um, who pointed me to Jamila Bupasha's memoir and testimony, which I think it's important to say was written largely by her lawyer and sold with a preface by Simone de Beauvoir. So coming back to some of the stuff that we were talking earlier about, the relationship between like rhetoric and public relations and, these, and the incredibly important role that they play in these huge um, internationally witnessed independence movements and wars. Um, Jamila Bupasha was a teenager when she was thrown in prison in Algeria for planting a bomb in a cafe in Algiers. Um, and for those of you who remember this history, you'll recall that um, there were attacks by Algerian liberationist FLN members on civilian targets following the bombing of the Qasbah in Algiers itself. So, you know, initial initial movements and attacks were largely against like armed uh, agents of the state. So police officers and, and military personnel, but it moved to civilian targets in the early 1950s. And Jamila was, she was working as a nurse's aide in a hospital in Algeria. So she also had this kind of interesting relationship to the medical apparatus of colonialism in Algeria. And she was, this is something that comes out in the memoir. I, I wouldn't say that for most readers, it's super central, but she was pissed because she found out when she was working as a nurse's aide that she would never be allowed to work as a nurse or a doctor on her own in the hospital because Algerians weren't allowed to to serve those roles. Um, so she joins the FLN. She does or doesn't plant this bomb, but this is what she was imprisoned for. And then she was tortured and raped in Algerian prison. And she insisted over and over again, along with her lawyer, that she be afforded a proper new medical examination by a female doctor, if possible. And again, for most readers of this text, you know the medical subtext is probably not the most important thing to remember. But I was so struck by how clear this very young woman, um, who had had this experience as a as an aide in a hospital, was about the power of medical evidence in the French juridical scene. So she just, she just knew that there was no way she was going to get her case heard unless she strategically medicalized herself. So she was like, look at my bruises. Somebody needs to give me a fresh vaginal examination. I want a speculum. I want to be naked. I want to be actually examined. I want the, like, she had a broken and displaced rib after she was kicked in the abdomen. She had multiple bruises and burn marks where, French paratroopers had and, and torturers had put out cigarettes on her skin, but she also wanted the law to see that she had been violated, um, it, 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 by it, raped by French soldiers, and that, that put her in a position, and I probably should have said this earlier, but for any listeners who are uncomfortable with or um, it's challenging for them to hear stories of sexual violence, I'll just say, like, this is going to continue for another minute or so. Um, the argument that I make in this chapter is that she had a kind of canny understanding of the fact that her vaginal tissue would need to be a legal text, that to make sure that the French state was taking account of the evidence of abrasion, of trauma in her vaginal passage, was going to be her ticket to being heard, her ticket to freedom. And this is such a a devastating realization to revisit. I mean, I can't read this book without weeping still. And I've read it a million times and I've written about it. Um, So this part of the chapter really thinks about like how gender um, complicates the medical paradigm of the colonial relationship. And it uses the clinical writings of Franz Fanon to also build on or build up a sense of what Jamila Bupasha was sort of up against. So Fanon, who was Martinican and moved to Algeria after a kind of stint in France studying psychoanalysis and writing his thesis, which turned out to be black skin, white masks, um, joined the revolution and was also serving as an analyst and psychiatrist for people both who were tortured and who were torturers. So the scenes at the end of um, The Wretched of the Earth, which almost no one reads, uh, Camille Robsis, who's a francophonist at Columbia, has um, some great writing about this. But Fanon's scientific writings are not as well attended to in the criticism. Um, but he has a lot to say about the relationship between, or like if you read between his writings, he has a lot to say about the relationship between uh, the veil. Um, it's a very troubled text and not a lot of feminist critics love it, but I I think it's very important. And then the the kind of presumed medical resistance of the Algerian subject. So one of the things he talks a lot about in those, in those case studies at the end of The Wretched of the Earth and in his essays on Um, medicine in Algeria in uh, the volume that's collected in English as a dying colonialism is what we would call now um, like a non-compliant patient. So he's doing this work in the 1950s that in 2020 and 2021, we would recognize as being like a critique of medicine from a racial perspective. And in doing that, he's really calling forward a kind of anti-colonial scientific practice he's not abandoning science. He's not saying, you know, medicine is useless. He's not saying psychiatry is useless. He's not saying Algerian subjects are incapable of being self-caring or incapable of being, you know, in charge of their own, their own, um, medical destinies. He is saying this entire system is racist and it doesn't allow subjects to be subjects. And it, it imposes a kind of, um, already hateful, already judgmental, and already biased medical gaze on colonized populations who have every right um, to, to resist it. So one of the anecdotes that I tell earlier earlier in the book in the first chapter is about how the CIA used a vaccination ruse in northern Pakistan and Abdub and Abdab- to ostensibly locate bin Laden. And there's this, again, there's this just like over a century's worth of history of colonial medicine being used as a cover for the abuse neglect, and um, manipulation of, of imperial subjects. So that chapter really digs into um, specifics about how those, those kind of medical pressures were used to control and intimidate imperial subjects and, um, and how these two thinkers, Jamila Bupasha and Franz Fanon, kept what was good in science and in care and kind of turned it on its head um, and created something that, that I like to think about as a kind of anti-imperial science or anti-colonial science.
3: Hmm. Um, in, in the third part of the book, you you kind of move us to the contemporary period and uh, kind of place us at the the end of the genealogy, which you, you've kind of talked about. Um, and you do a really great job throughout the book of kind of moving back and forth, I should, I should definitely say. Um, and um, you use um, some of the writings of Salman Rushdie as uh, w- what seems to be like an example of a, a, a diasporic continuation of the, the colonial terror poetics, in a sense. Yes. Um, so w- what are the, the key points in the evolution of, of Rushdie's uh, representation of radical Islamism um, that, that you see in epidemic terms.
0: I'm so glad you asked it that way because part of the argument of that chapter is that there's really an evolution. Like, Rushdie starts as a writer who has such a humane touch with South Asian Muslims and is really expansive about what he imagines to be the affiliated possibilities of a global ummah or, or a global Islamicate. I spend most of my like loving attention in the Risby chapter on the Satanic Verses, um, which is a novel that I think is pretty extraordinary and, and deeply misread. Um, what a history that novel has. Um, but then I also look at his novel called Shalimar the Clown, which is about Kashmir and his memoir, which uh, his memoir, Joseph Anton, which largely describes his years in hiding following the Fatwa. so you know, in in a way Joseph Anton is like the narrative of the outcome. Of the complexity of the satanic verses, this is another kind of like literary history thread that's kind of fascinating, but like look at what happens to a writer when he takes the risk of being humane to Muslim subjects. not just what happens to him in terms of, you know, a chaotic life or, you know, security threats, but what happens to his mind and his writing. Um, so the evolution of his treatment of Islam transforms really rapidly from a kind of humane understanding um, to something where he's, in the later works, associating Islam, Islamism, terrorism, all three of them with, you guessed it, a contagion. Um, so, you know, this writer who we herald as being such an important voice in post-colonialism is one that I both admire and that I also really want to hold to account in this book for not only propagating, but knowingly handing over the idea that Islamism is a cancer to global leaders. I mean, he's taking up his platform at Penn World Voices Festivals at on Um in the halls of power, literally speaking to to, to global leaders in, in Britain and the US, in Norway, in Japan, and his ideas have a lot of traction. We started by talking about the relationship between literature and like other kinds of writing, and some of it comes down to who's listening, who's reading these books. Um, and the story with Rushdie is that he becomes a kind of peddler over the course of, you know, between the late 1980s and and the the mid-2000 of this same old um, clash of civilizations nonsense. And that story is both heartbreaking. I mean, I, I tried to do something sort of clever in that chapter, which is to reverse the chronological order of the books that I'm reading so that I can end on a hopeful note, because it does seem important to say like that book, The Satanic Verses, you know, it's a masterpiece um, and it's a book, it's funny and it's weird and it's it's, you know, it's not entirely, defensible when it comes to the Iranian Revolution and its depiction of the Iranian Revolution but largely it's interested in in the complexity of a possible affiliative universe of of global muslims and that's not a kind of uh that's a very heterodox islam that he's describing um heterodox at at the root and that's you know something that i believe in so um yeah i try to end the chapter on that note because i think that book is smarter and it has something better to say but you know, I think it's important to be clear as post-colonial critics that not every person in that canon is a savior and not everybody has the same politics. And Rushdie has the voice of global Islam for the Anglophone readership. And that is a huge responsibility. Um, and it's one that I think he's really let down in his uh, more recent works. Um, I couldn't quite bring myself to write about Fury, his New York post 9-11 novel, because it's just too it's not even fun, honestly. It's not even a fun read. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, South Asian diasporic Islam becomes a kind of archetype in the in the post Thatcher pre 9/11 and then post 9/11 era. And a lot of what I'm trying to look at is how the idea of diasporic South Asian Islam shapes the U.S. empire in the 21st century. Um, so to, t- to tie things. Sort of all up together the final chapter then shifts from Rushdie to as i was talking about earlier the 9 11 commission report the senate intelligence committee report on torture um and yeah the process by which we can understand those books as being like part of a <laughs> kind of neo-colonial state-sponsored prose canon um and what they have to say about south asian and middle eastern islam so you know that that kind of bizarre double bar- double-barreledness of the war on terror being fought in Iraq and Afghanistan gives us the kind of geographic complexity and paradigm of this kind of twinned um, South Asian Muslim diaspora issue. And then, um, and then a kind of uh, Middle East quagmire narrative.
3: Yeah. It's, there's really so much to the book. Um, and I, I'm a big fan uh, if you can tell already, but um we probably should uh, start wrapping it up, but, so, but I want to give you um, an opportunity. I don't know if you, you have any um, final thoughts or uh, examples you want to talk about. There, there's there's so many uh, kind of strands throughout the book that um, maybe you have something favorite that you haven't talked about uh, either here or in other conversations about the book that, that maybe you want to leave us with. Or,
0: You know, I think I'll just say, because it hasn't come up in any other... Interviews that I've given or talks that I've been doing recently, there is a there is a big long chapter on Dracula. Um, it's kind of like, I, in a way, it's like so embarrassing to have written, but I I also think it's really good. Um, Dracula is such an overread text that it's, you have to kind of pay people to hear you talk about it. So I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna go into it right now. But anybody who like has in them a little bit of curiosity left about the vampire myth. I would say, like, I think the Dracula chapter is really fun and it's weird and it's it's not like all the other Dracula writing that you've read or or it's like about how annoying all the other Dracula writing that you've read is. Um, and I talk about, you know, the gothicism of the potato and uh, it has some of the best index um, items in the book, uh, which my indexer, Josh Rettner, had like so much fun with and I don't know you know it may be that we can't really um maybe that we're past the moment of thinking about um about that novel and bram stoker culturally right now but i do want to just say like that chapter is there because there was also a huge resurgence of vampire narratives in popular culture um following 9 11 and that was another question that i had like what's the buried orientalism here and how does it reflect on and what's like in stoker's own research that reflects our our moment of islamophobia and does it help us to understand why the vampire myth came back so strongly um, in those 10 years or so um, after September 11th. And I will also point listeners to Jaspir Puar and Amidurai's, um beautiful article that kind of led me in that direction, which is called uh, Monster Terrorist Fag, and it's about the 19th century monsters that are kind of still with us today. So there's a bit of writing about Frankenstein in that chapter, and... Um, yeah, just basically, I'm just wrapping up by saying that also exists in the book. Um, if anybody's interested <laughs> it
3: does, in yeah, it, no, it's great, and it does. It does a really good job of kind of showing uh, both how how we can read Dracula or and Stoker's writings more broadly in a kind of context of this larger imperial and scientific uh, discourse. So, uh, it's very good. Yeah, there, there. I mean, there's lots of other good things in the book too that we didn't get to talk about. So. Um, before I let you go though um I'm sure people would be interested to hear the the types of uh things you're working on now if you're if you're able to work during the, the pandemic I know I'm I'm having a hard time but um do you have projects that are in the works or or things coming out that people should look out for?
0: I'm trying. Um yeah, I have a collection of poems that I just finished that's called uh, has an Urdu title and an English title it's called Janabe Shikva, which um which is a kind of play on Allama Iqbal's Pair of poems, Shikva and Javabe Shikva, so complaint and answer to the complaint. Um, my pun means like lady of complaint. Uh, English title is Watch Queen. And um, I'm working on a collection of essays that's about sort of life and poetry. I am working on a new translation of Iqbal. Um, I'm doing a book-length documentary poem about the Indus Waters Treaty of 1960, which is kind of Inspired by Muriel Rukeyser's *The Book of the Dead* and um, Mark Nowak's *Coal Mountain Elementary*, and um, because people have been asking me this uh, specifically in this way, so I've had I've had a number of colleagues and friends ask me, "What are you working on next?" So I can be prepared. Um, I will say <laughs> it's not pandemics this time. I'm not predicting another pandemic. It's um, but it is uh, the next academic project is about among other things, water scarcity and water privatization. Um, so I'm doing a research project on what, what are kind of slightly transformed Marxist special commodities. Um, so there's a chapter on sugar, a chapter on water, and a chapter on world literature. So more from me on networks of trade, imperial history, resources, resource ownership, and um, aesthetics and literature.
3: Great. All, all, sounds, all sounds good. Well, good luck and uh, yeah it's exciting stuff.
0: Thank you so much, Kristen. It's been really fun to talk to you about the book and um, and it's an honor to be on this podcast and
3: that was my conversation with Anjuli Raza Kolb about epidemic empire, colonialism, contagion and terror 1817 to 2020 published with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Thanks again for listening to new books in Islamic studies.